Hello and welcome to episode 357 of the Creighton Crowbar PC gaming podcast being recorded on the 10th of February 2021. I'm Marsh Davis and this evening I'm joined by... <laughs> I forgot your names. <laughs> Brilliant. Chris Smooth Egg Thurston. <laughs> Feel it and Z. And Alex Villas Fingers Wiltshire. Hello. Use them to feel the egg. <laughs> <laughs> Sense your egg. Sense the smoothness. Hello, Marshall. Hello, mate. Would you like to hear some news about video games? Yes, please. Well, do you recall in the ancient past there was a game called Six Days in Fallujah? I do. Which was uh, <laughs> partially developed, at least, and then rather unceremoniously dropped by the then publishers because of a outcry about the game being too soon to cover what was at the time emerging to be possibly a war crime. And it subsequently but... turned out to be a war crime. <laughs> 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 yes. Um, but now it's back and it's being made afresh, uh, partly by at least the CEO of the former developer, um, uh, who has joined forces with Marty O'Donnell's studio. Uh, Marty O'Donnell and is it Jamie Greismer? Oh, you went for the you went for the surname. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea how to pronounce that. It's um, <laughs> but the, he he was a uh, both both worked on Haley Haley <laughs> both worked on Halo uh, Halo. <laughs> Marty O'Donnell was the uh, audio director, and uh, uh, Jamie uh, was a game designer on Halo. Marsh, you were right. Um, <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I mean, I'm sure if anybody can uh, chaperone a uh, near documentary level of uh, detail about a war crime into a very tasteful and respectful uh, video game format, it would be two of the creators of Halo. Well, I, you know, right? like, I, I, yeah, definitely, because one, you'll get a very nice kind of um, uh, uh, monk singing over the top. Yeah. So that's that'll be very. Mm-hmm you know just sensitive and nice and and it it'll it'll be you'll get your 30 seconds of fun as well <laughs> yeah it's it's the 30 seconds of fun part I'm, i mean you know marty o'donnell's trumpets aside like uh i think the 30 seconds of fun uh matched with you know what is meant to be a very uh accurate representation of what it was like to be boots on the ground during those six days Feels a little bit worrisome. I do vaguely remember at the time uh, uh, the Fallujah game um, was. I remember reports that it was a fairly standard uh, military shooter for the time, and therefore not really about um, saying anything of substance about the actual experience of having boots on a ground or anything like that. So, um, I, yeah, it's all very misconceived. I, I believe this has got lots of, to make up for that, um, it, this has got lots of interviews and things with um, soldiers who were there. Well, I actually interviewed the, um, the guy uh, the, who was then the president of the developer previously. Uh, Did you? Peter, Peter Tampter. Yeah, and he, I mean, like, I'm as sceptical as you, Alex, but uh, <laughs> he, he gave a very good account of himself, uh, I, would, I would have to say. Um, in terms of 
whether the medium is even up to the challenge of depicting these sorts of complex situations. I mean, he, he I mean, he talks about how uh, there's a just a, a widespread conception that games should be fun and trivial, and he completely rejects that. And you know, that's it. It shouldn't shouldn't be about fun or triviality. It should be about expressing. Uh, the, the full range of emotions that it is that you experience in in combat and uh um i don't know yeah i, I felt mm. i felt like he he was he was very persuasive in the interview uh that i did with him i wasn't persuaded but he did <laughs> he was he tried his best um <laughs> he failed but the um I, the, I do vaguely remember a report from you know one of the developers um talking way after um the cancellation uh talking about the, that it was m very misunderstood as a game which again possibly speaks well of it it's rare that you get yeah. developers um speaking well of games that they genuinely didn't like you know after mm -hmm. the event you know usually games go down in the estimation you know after the event as the kind of the, the true story comes out sort of thing so that's maybe a good sign I, I I wonder at the the timing of this. Like, why why now? Yeah, like, I yeah. I don't I like I appreciate that at the time if it was felt to be too soon, but like that didn't stop. There were plenty of games that at least attempted some form of critique of uh, the war on terror, whether that's like Spec Ops: The Line or, or mm. that sort of thing. Which and is actually whole... influenced by that exact conflict because the Spec right. Ops: The Line has a whole thing about using white phosphorus, which was used in this in during the, the Battle of Fallujah. Right, uh, and I think controversially, and also it's not like the industry as a whole shied away from making games about the war on terror more broadly, albeit fictionalized for years and years and years and years and years. And that has subsequently kind of gone out of fashion, and it is fashion, right? Like it's 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 whatever the kind of fashion for military shooters of the day happens to be. And I I wasn't aware of a kind of broader rumbling back towards that kind of. I mean, maybe that's the way Call of Duty has kind of gone, except the most recent one, which went to the you know the eight the Cold War. Um, it feels very out of place to me. I don't know. I don't know why, but like I sort of, um. Cult, even culturally i can't see the kind of um the moment that's why this is the moment to kind of return to this as a project um, well, unless of course it's... army recruitment is down <laughs> i think <laughs> well i'm the, literally uh... about to say that yeah like <laughs> guess but I, I, yeah yeah i mean i i think it's i actually don't necessarily have uh like a, a blanket problem with games approaching these these subjects like games are 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 the the medium of our age and just as media of the, the previous ages were used to focus on vietnam or, or world war ii i think it's i mean it's not only inevitable that video games look at these sorts of conflicts but i also think it's it's sort of like giving up your responsibility to look at these things seriously if you only dwell in safely make-believe wars or or you create mm. You know, like Bioshock does. You know, basically, political systems that exist in fantasy wonderlands that are quite divorced from reality and only allegorically related to ours. And I, I think you know, to have an unblinking look at these conflicts, uh, and indeed, even to put people in the situations that soldiers are in, I think is important. I just don't know that we're at a stage where we can do that uh, in a way which justly demonstrates the. <laughs> the context of it you know well i was just thinking that um I, it feels like 
uh, we're a bit over the concept of games being empathy machines. I think that there was this sort of there is bit was a drive, especially that, that was building and building, especially as VR started to get going again. You know, a few years ago, that there was this idea that <clears throat> games could place you in other people's shoes, and you know, so you could experience what um what what it would be like to be a soldier. And there were those kind of VR games where where you know that were all about you know <clears throat> this is the finest way to to allow people to experience other people's points of view, and. I, th- I think that that has been kind of debunked, you know, that doesn't really work very well. You know, there are so many mediating factors, you know, from the point of view of the player to the, to the, to the, to the point of view of the makers and then any problems of the kind of technology that get in the, and techniques that get in the way. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel that now is probably a pretty bad time to try unless you, unless you've solved it somehow. I just can't, I, I'm, I'm kind of of this age and very, very skeptical that that I will get any sense of what it would be to be presumably an American soldier in, in that situation because mm. I mean, it's not going to be able to encompass all those things. And from what I've read about this, um, you know, the, the game that, that they're now remaking and, and re sort of re-putting out, it's about celebrating the heroes on the ground and I don't know. As soon as I hear the word hero in relation to um, Fallujah, I just sort of lots of warning bells goes off and go off in my mind. Well, I think that's the thing. Like, if if it does have, you know, I think it, uh, if it does have, as these games tend to, sort of some, um, you know, support from the US government or any kind of remit to kind of yeah. rein- reinforce the army, then it can't tell a documentary. It can't, you know, like if it has a, an outcome in mind, which is you're, com- you're going to come away with this, at least a chance of thinking that, you know, joining the army might be for you, then it can't be p- positioned as something that shows you the reality of it, because presumably the, the, the true reality of any military situation would alienate at least some people. Like mm. at a baseline, we have to abstract war quite a lot to make it fun. I'm just yeah, and saying. I think the games are really yeah, like, good at kind of big abstractions. You know, they're yeah, but they're bad at the the focused bit. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and I'm and not just video games. Like you know, we abstract war in a million different ways to 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 kind of make entertainment out of the 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 conflict and and take away everything that's bad about it. And you could argue that's always had a kind of polemic purpose to some extent. I just and I agree with, like, I think I agree with both of you that I think this notion that games are inherently empathy machines is patently kind of not true, really. Like, they can be, but it takes a lot of work and craft to get them there. And it also actually, I think, takes a willing audience because the great exactly, thing about yeah. agency, the great thing about agency is someone could make the most sensitive, affecting um, piece of interactive art in the world and you will always have the option of interacting if it's meaningfully interactive you will always be able to break it because that's the compact you've entered into with the artist at that point um and so you're always going to need an audience that wants to be affected in in, in a particular way and so you know because otherwise you've hypnotized people and i think that's probably illegal so <laughs> you know like <laughs> um so yeah like i think the the notion that this that games inherently cause you to experience situation and feel empathy for participants is false and false at best and 
naive at best and marketing at worst. And also the fact that like, you know, it just doesn't feel like the perspective and the um, I don't not to damn anything before it's it's shown made a showing mm. of itself, but like it doesn't feel like the perspective that one would be seeking in order to get a um sort of evocative, balanced and humane take on that moment in history in recent history, right? Right. I mean, you can say, oh, you're giving a really authentic view uh, from the from the boots in the ground, but you know, what did those boots in the ground know? I mean, if I've seen Generation Kill, those guys didn't know what the fuck was going on, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And and I, but also given their broader remit, which might well be, you know, people aren't joining the army. Um, it's very mm-hmm. unlikely that their you know their presentation of the experience of boots on the ground would be it's just a horrible shit show and you don't know what's going on and it's not pleasant you wish you hadn't come <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah mm. <laughs> I was trying for a segue there but I think it's probably not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> from atrocity to what have you been playing Alex I want to talk about some nerd stuff I've been playing three games but they're all kind of linked to each other um, and They've all come out at a sort of similar in the, in the last few years, and I'm just, I guess there are lots of other examples like it. But um, I don't know these these sort of I happen to have stumbled into all three of these separately over the last few weeks. But um, uh, they're all uh, recently released games for old systems. They're actually built for to work on old classic um, um, computer systems. Um, uh, I was talking uh, a while back about um, um, my Mister. FPGA kind of game hardware simulation kind of thing that I've been playing lots of kind of old games on. Um, and um, and all of these games actually work on it in the the cause of their time. So the first one is kind of this game called Micro Mages, which is on, um, came out, I think last year or maybe the year before. It's on Steam. And in the Steam install, you get uh, a, a Nintendo, a NES um, ROM, as well as the the kind of the game that runs in Steam as well on your PC uh, that you can play in an emulator or whatever. And Micromages, there's this really nice little co-op um, platformer um, kind of where you and up to three friends are little tiny mages um, and you're on a vertically scrolling level and um, you uh, have to basically go upwards to the to the level exit before you get scrolled off the screen but the the scrolling is kind of forced but it's um uh fairly lenient it doesn't go super fast and there are lots of enemies and you've got a little you can shoot shots um sort of up down left and right as you're jumping around um and like it's it looks really really nice um it's just a beautiful simple looking game but it it is it it works entirely on a um on a on a nes i don't weirdly though i think the ins you know your steam for the steam version the pc version i don't think it's actually running in an emulator i think it's running in some native you know pc native kind of wrapper or whatever the hell you call it uh, which is kind of odd but um but it does i was using my mister playing it on my mister and it looks really nice the visual style of it is just you know uses the fact that you've got limited um palette on a on a nes and the 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 choice of colors is really nice just very just satisfying looking really beautifully simple um textures and things um what's also interesting about it is that it's learned it you know it looks and it plays on an old system but it's learned all sorts of modern conventions of platformers um 
notably wall jumping, which you didn't never used to get back in the day. Uh, but this is, you know, you wall jump all the way, just like, you know, a lot of modern um, uh, platformers, which is works really nicely and um, it flows and it, it feels very modern as a result. Um, I really recommend it. I played it with um, uh, my son and we sort of, sort of rushed through three levels of it, you know, three worlds of it. So it's like, I don't know, nine levels or something. And um, yeah, it's uh, just a neat game, very neat game. Um, and then I played a game called Tanglewood, which is a platformer made for the Mega Drive of Genesis. Um, again, when you with your install, you get a copy of uh, the game for that you can run an emulator on your um, um, Mega Drive, uh, and it sort of it, it, it's I, I understand and I'm not all that clued into um, Mega Drive uh, technology like the way that they that those games tend to work, but I understand that it uses lots of techniques and tricks and things to make it you know run at lots of more colors than the system would normally support and with more frames of animation and that kind of thing like these huge great levels where uh there's lots of free roaming exploration to do um but yeah i mean it's you know your little your kind of little wolf cat thing and you kind of bound along with this flowing looping animation which is really nice and kind of you sort of work your way up to a sprint if you hold down the button for longer um and there is a kind of its conceit is that you can transform into a kind of different slightly different forms this is like a flying form and others that that it kind of releases to you in kind of a modicum so that you can access different parts of the level it's not really a metroidvania but the levels are so large that you'll need them um, it's this one weirdly it doesn't feel very modern I don't think it feels feels I mean even to the extent that you've it's got a password system you can't save in it at least not on a if you're playing it in emulators so you have to sort of get the password code to, to punch it in to get to kind of resume a game but yeah it's that's it's nice it's nice um and the third one is an Apple II game which came out on Steam only like a few weeks ago, maybe three or four weeks ago, called Nox Arcadist. And uh, it's very kind of, it's an Ultima style um, RPG um, running that runs, uh, when you when you run it from Steam, it runs in an emulator um, and it is extremely Apple II. So initially it, it, you just see it and it just looks horrible it's kind of <laughs> like a real mess of pixels and things um you know there's a color version you can also force it to go black and white and things as well it has a kind of its own font as well which in the in the kind of the color scheme that it works in it's just almost unreadable but i actually started to quite like it it's sort of there's a charm to it it's sort of roughly hewn kind of look to it um which actually sort of makes its fantasy world feel i don't know just feels quite true to to where it came from and what it's trying to depict and things um and like you know th this game again a bit like micromages it, it's pushing the apple II hardware into things that it was never really meant to do so i so I, this one doesn't actually run on uh, mister but that's because um you need two disk drives or you need it to, to run on a hard drive 
which the core on the MISTA doesn't support either of those two things. You only get one disk drive that it supports on there. Uh, uh, and that's because it basically caches stuff all the time and it runs, uh, it, it loads stuff off the disk as you're playing because the memory, presumably the memory of the Apple II just isn't remotely enough for all the stuff it's pushing around. Um, it also is it's really sluggish. So you press a direction and, and your little character, like there's a sort of half second before your character moves, um, which again was annoying, a bit like the imagery, like the the, the kind of the, the, the graphics was kind of annoying to start with. But again, I just I just found myself in the flow of its its pacing and started to quite like it. There's a sort of a um, consideredness to it. Um, but there's lots of things about it that are really good. I, I was actually fiddling around with older, older, older games recently, and there's lots of kind of weird edges to it where, you know, the spell systems and how you access them and how you get information is quite convoluted for, for by modern standards. And this one, it's a lot easier to go into inventories and to view things and, and see what's what you've got hold of and to equip things and for that to be a lot easier than it is you know in most classic sort of rpgs um but like all these three games they all i really like the fact that they are all product of um of you know having to uh um, run on older systems like they are wedded to that idea they use presumably lots and lots of tricks that have been learned over the decades since but they are fundamentally um, running on old stuff. And it's just nice to see those old systems still able to support games that are just worth playing. Like Nox Arcade, it's enjoyable. It's like, it's it's, an, it's a good game. Like, um, you know, you, there's an overworld. There's, the combat is is pretty good. It's like a turn-based combat where you, uh, you you know, take turns with with the enemies to, to, to act, to, with you know, you arrange your ranged um, uh characters you know in the back and and run your your fighters forward and you watch your magic points and things to sort of make sure you've got some left it's you know I, it it just works really well um yeah it's been fun you really have been playing insatiably with your mister i have i, I really <laughs> like it <laughs> <laughs> have you also come across some uh, cyber shadow which is the um so Yacht Club Games, the maker of um, uh, Shovel Knight, is their first published game. It's by a studio. I'm going to have to click on this actually to find, remind myself what the studio is called. Um, I think they've... Uh, <laughs> okay, the developer is Arnie Mechaskull Hunziker. <laughs> uh, but, but that's Cyber Shadow, which is a like a... Uh, a sort of this is a modern game but it's it's sort of retro flavored in the same way that shovel knight is um where you're kind of like a ninja person sort of doing ninja things in in platform land and like i played maybe now that and maybe i'll come back to talk about that but um that's that's been fun as well it's like oh, i've always kind of been disdain disdainful of the retro gaming scene but i've been enjoying doing all this retro stuff and i don't like calling it retro but i can't think of a better word can these do these games take liberties with the emulation? Like, I mean, obviously this hardware is what I'm parsing the the data of the game, but can the can the cartridges be twice the size of the cartridges of the NES or whatever? 
Yes, I think so. I don't think there are limits to. I don't under, don't think there are particular limits to the size of the kind of the cart that they're running off. Obviously, they're limited on the number of of memory that that they can access at any given time. But yeah, right. I, I guess yeah. I guess you can make them as big as you like. Hmm. Actually, because yeah, that's a point. Like there is a there's a beat 'em up game which is either about to come out or has come out, which I've entirely forgotten the name of. I might be able to find it in order to put it in the show notes. But um, this one of its sales points is it runs, uh, I think it's a it's another Mega Drive game and uh, it's the, the the biggest Mega Drive game of all time. Like it, run, it comes in a billion megabit cartridge or something like that. So yeah, I don't think that they're particularly limited by that. I have to say, Alex, I see absolutely no point to any of this. <laughs> like, I, what, what, what is it about? I mean, presumably, you like you said earlier that these games are made in a way which weds them to that format. But like, what is it about that format, those those restrictions, that actually makes those games more interesting to you than were they just <laughs> designed now for today's hardware? Yeah, I mean that that's a that's a fair question. I, it's definitely. I don't think it's as simple as to say pure nostalgia for me because because I didn't have a super I didn't have a NES and I didn't have an Apple II and I didn't have a, a Mega Drive so I don't really have any particular contemporary relationship with those machines. However, there is an aesthetic to these machines which I am interested in because. Um, you know, because of, you know the affordances of their particular, um, you know, sort of their technology, their architectures and things, they they did found a certain feel and a certain look and a certain style for the games that were released on them. Um, and I, you know, I've never I've never played on a, an Apple II. Um, I but I'm interested because I know how much game you know gaming history is reliant on on games that did come out on apple II. you know i'm interested to see what those affordances are and um you know the same you know obviously with nez like my conception of nez before now has been that you know like of all those sort of clashy colors you know the way that when it scrolls and in mario Mm. brothers 3 you get the kind of these clashy colors on the very edge because of the way the scrolling system works to see a game uh, now, which looks, which which is absolutely, I don't know, which is true to it, but it, I mean, I, I've always liked restriction as an as as an aesthetic, as a as a way of making yeah. things. You know, um, these these games, that these newer games, are benefit from really hard thinking about what those systems were and what they can do, and and making the best and and focusing on their strengths. You know. And I mean, with Tanglewood, I'd say is the, the one I'm least interested in in all of these. It's a sprawling kind of platformer. And, you know, there are hundreds of those around now. And I like those better because they're just better than, than, than Tanglewood is, both in design, but also because they, you know, sprawling net uh, platforms generally benefit from more powerful hardware. Um, but Nox Arcade, there is... RPGs have, for me, have can be very, um, 
you can throw so much at them. They can be very, very sprawling. Um, and I've, I think I see, I look at, I see this RPG situation a little bit like, you know, today you can have a world which is almost endless and you can go around it and they can be huge and there can be so much to do. You know, you can look at, you know, the games of Larian or something like that. And I've really, really enjoyed Divinity too. Um, but the magic of, of being able to explore that world sort of, I quickly forgot the, the richness, you know, because it's always there and it's all so much. And I became blind to it. Um, I, I, and I honestly, I probably enjoyed it for other reasons, you know, for, for the, for the, the deep, the depth of, of, of thinking you can put into any situation to kind of think your way around the puzzles and the combat situations that you get into. So it's, it's, but it's nice. To, I like the older games because the promise of what they can reveal to you at any one point um, can be more surprising because when it gives you a little, it feels like so much more. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's what knocks Archaist is. It's the situation where when something somebody says something different to you the next time you try to talk to them, it's just one line of text but it has much more impact than than a modern game, which has you know, which which throws at you five hundred hours of of fifteen people's <laughs> work, you know, you know, just because you've done something in the game, it just doesn't, and somehow that doesn't have as much impact. I'm kind of rambling. I'm not really. Don't think I'm really expressing it quite right. No, but no, I think you there's have. A, yeah, yeah. It's the it's the affordances of this stuff, and I like I, I am interested in game history. I've written quite a lot about it over the like the years, and you know I'm uh, to actually experience it um, live. I think um, feels special to me, and you know it's, that's quite a personal thing. Yeah, I know. I, I think I, I think when you talk about restrictions, that really does uh, chime with me because I mean there are restrictions do push you to make interesting choices, like you know if you have a limited palette then you are going to make aesthetic choices based on the number of colors that you have available. And sometimes those choices would be really interesting. Yeah. I think where where I kind of diverge from uh, the, the sort of valorization of uh, older hardware uh, is is when th- those restrictions are don't impact me as a, as a player aesthetically or otherwise, but are, you know, it's it was just harder to make a game <laughs> on, a, yeah. on a device which had a smaller amount of memory available for it. And really, I don't, I don't care how much memory you know there is available for it. If if that doesn't, you know, exceptionally impact me as a as a player. Yeah, no, for um, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that's true. Yeah. That's true. I think uh, you know. I think also I've been there are loads of games that I've I've completely overlooked over the years. Um, you know, like like I said, I didn't really play that many. I had a BBC Micro, um, and then I had a. 486 PC um, and the Super Nintendo, and though and like that was it. I went around friends' houses and, and played th- sort of other systems and and kind of coveted them deeply, but didn't really play them very much. So I didn't really have that much relationship with Amiga stuff or anything like that. Um, but um, so there are lots of you know. So I, I I was talking to you about this the other day, Marty. But um, I have been playing a lot of the old Castlevania games. So this is the pre. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> what's the one on on the on uh, PlayStation? Oh, Symphony of the Night. Gone. 
Say again. Symphony, Symphony of Symphony the Night. Symphony of the Night. So the, the ones before that. So the Symphony of the White Night is the one where it goes Metroidvania. Uh, before that, they were very linear um, adventures. And they were, you know, you play them now and they feel incredibly stiff. And whenever I've played them in emulators, you know, just dabbling, I was instantly turned off by them. And I didn't, didn't really give them any real attention because the jump is, you, you know, it's one of those old games where when you, press the jump button you are committed to the jump now and and it goes in an arc which is very defined and you feel slightly you don't feel that you can react to stuff you you it, it feels stiff is the word um but i've been going back to so uh castlevania 3 on the um nez um rondo of blood on the um, pc engine type of graphics and um, and actually forcing myself to play them, and I'm actually seeing why they're good games, why they're seen as being good now, and why they're still celebrated. That that stiffness is actually in service to a good game, like the levels and the enemies, and everything is designed around that stiffness. And actually, I'm recognizing in it the sort of it, the Dark Soulsness of that, you know, where Dark Souls game is is in the awkwardness sometimes you know the committing mm. to when you start the animation for you know what if you're hit using a big weapon you know and that's yeah. what where some of those ideas came from and you can see lots of modern games that were being established by those older games and again it's a it's a sort of history wank for me frankly but um i'm i'm enjoying actually realizing that holy shit <laughs> They were good, and I did write them off um, because they don't have the sort of eagerness to please that modern games tend to have. And, you know, and they, they are eager to please, and that's a good thing to do. But um, there's also uh, a lot of value in stiffness, you know, as long as the rest of the game is designed around it. And, you know, it's been, it's been a cool journey. There is something to be said for stiffness when you're playing with your mister. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> there's a time and a place for this is the time and a place for it. Mm. And it's the nineties. <laughs> when you swing your big weapon. Do you expect a little stiffness? That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just want to feel young again, really. I mean oh, but, yeah, yeah. That, that is I please don't just don't don't say it's nostalgia, please. I'm trying to I'm talking all these words, trying to convince myself that it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What you been playing, Chris? I've been playing two things. One of them's um, really relevant to what you've just said, but I want to talk about the other one first because I've got less to say about it. So um, it's been Steam demo season recently, um, which in which a lot of time-limited demos are proffered up for for the playing. And one of them was a game that I had seen on Twitter and was really looking forward to called Shady Night, which is Shady Night. Oh yeah, Shady Night, um, which is by uh, someone who goes by uh, Captain Sai Alexi on Twitter. I think it's a it's a one person gig. Um, it is a first person sort of um, melee action game. Um, sort of combo-based action game that I would, having now played it, played the demo, which is only about 15, 20 minutes of stuff, but enough because it's a very pure concept. Um, I would describe it as a combination of, um, well, Arcane's combat system, i.e. Dishonored or Dark Messiah, um, little bits of both, 
um, plus Devil May Cry plus Super Hot. And you probably know from that description whether or not this is making you super hot because it certainly made <laughs> made me that. Oh, it's been a, a, a sweaty podcast already. And it's so cold. Um, uh, so you uh, enter a series of um, very pretty abstract environments, these sort of grey-blue monoliths hanging in space, these sort of fortresses to climb and scale up, which are populated by... Um, knights and spiders and archers that are uh, really nicely animated but the design of them that it's, it's 3d but they're almost like textureless black shapes basically characterfully silhouetted but they are basically just silhouettes and so are you a shady knight if you will um and you have a couple of you move very very quickly it has that old school doom speed of like you press w and you're rocketing ahead um with really well-timed and naturally kind of implemented slow-mo and stuff uh you could jump slide kick attack pick up objects and dash to fallen weapons i think are all the interactions in the game and different combinations of these produce different results also based on what weapons you're holding or what you're doing so you slide with a sword you can throw the sword and then while the sword is in the air you could use the dash to dropped weapon to teleport up to the sword and then grab it again. And then you might use that to get yourself some elevation to boot someone into the ether or something like that. Um, I feel like the, 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 the brilliance of it is that like it gifts extremely well. And I'm really aware of the complete pointlessness of describing this in an audio. Only <laughs> medium. And I would thoroughly recommend people look the game up and look at gifs of it or videos of it because it, it it has that magic of it sells itself immediately i think based on how it feels but and i had that experience of, of seeing gifs of it on twitter prior to getting to play it now that i have played it um it really does kind of deliver on all of those things like i say it was really just a 20 minute slice of the game that was just some arenas a tutorial some arenas and some of these sort of like stages like towers to climb um and it feels it feels really good i think the they've kind of managed to splice in a, a, a kind of combo system that rewards you for varied play. So you have a kind of uh, Devil May Cry style, you know, grading, like grade rating that goes from DC to to S, I believe, in the in kind of time-honored manner. And um, you keep that, you know, your score based on what your, your grade is at the end of the level. And that is based on how fast you're going, but also the variety of moves and whether or not you've taken any damage or failed or anything like that. So it's very much a kind of quick restart kind of combo game when you get into it. And that seems like I didn't spend enough time with it to get like an A rating or anything like that. Like I was sort of just getting through it. But um, I think what it is has, has real promise. And actually like um, the, only, the only thing I, I think that might, that, that for me was like a bit of a sort of mixed bag, I suppose, is that it's quite, it's so sort of stylish and abstractly presented that I somewhat missed the pathos of Dark Messiah that comes from like kicking an orc into some spikes and seeing how upset he is that this has happened. Um, <laughs> you really are interacting with abstract shapes in something, in what is essentially a stylish gray box. Um, and so it loses some of that like sense of place that I think is 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 a part of why Dark Desire particularly feels like such a kind of daring do simulator, but with its own kind of objectives in mind with what it wants to be, which is this kind of score attack arcade game. It's real nice. It's real. I remember nice. that it looks it's, it, 
sort of because it's all first person the the gifts that i've seen of it seem the the player seems impossibly skillful um do you mm. do you feel skillful when you're playing it i definitely it took me it's it's in a good place i think because you start playing and you can all of the main interactions feel really good to do and like a lot of good recent beat em ups and things it the input isn't the challenge right like you learn the core interactions very quickly. You do something while sliding, you do this thing, you slide, you jump while sliding, you do a long jump, you cold jump as you hit a chain and you'll climb the chain and swing on the chain and gain loads of momentum. And so each individual interaction feels cool and makes you feel cool. Where the skill comes in is combining them and mixing them up. And that is almost like, and this is the thing that I very much connect it to like a Devil May Cry game or something like that that's the part of it that feels like learning to play a musical instrument Hmm. because you become as you get past that initial hump of like what can i do beating the level is not the point it is you you can't take very much damage you take like two hits and you're dead um but you're so fast and you have so many options that like just defeating all the enemies isn't necessarily a, a huge challenge um the but i did get to the point i think i got to the I would describe if if the skill if there's like a skill curve, I got to the point where it started to curve upwards, and it started to curve upwards the moment I realized I could do this more stylishly if I was better at this, or I made a more interesting choice in that moment. And so that's where it starts to have that feeling of like, oh, this would take some serious commitment to make a kind of amazing looking sequence of plays that I could then record and, and stick on Twitter. Um, so it's some of does that answer? It's sort of some of both. It's like I got to the point where I could play a chord basically with it, yeah. and learning to play one chord taught me, oh, there's a lot to this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these these individual parts could be combined in ways that I can't do yet, but I can see the road to getting there. But I was yeah. having fun just sort of doing my own thing. Um, in a way, like I think even the demo had like five, four or five stages to run around in. And I kind of spent most of my time in one of them. Like I played through all of them once and then just sat in one of them and did it over and over and over and over and over again, just to try and like figure out how to ace one thing. And so that's a, that's a good sign. Like any, you know, if any, any kind of combo based brawler, if it, if it survives just being the same enemies in the same order being fought over and over and over again, and you'll keep finding new things or or figuring out new things. And that, that's a, a really promising um yeah so yeah just a really promising little game um i'm not sure yeah. when it's out but very impressive for one person's work as well yeah stunning it does look really good uh the other thing i have been playing is kind of the game of the moment i think um is valheim um and valheim i think has a really interesting relationship with the kind of retro conversation that we were just having um because so what this is is Valheim is an early access survival game. And so it's not the kind of thing I would normally jump into, um, but it's taken off in a big way. It is the product of a studio called Iron Gate, which I believe is a two-person team, which is, again, extraordinary. And having come out about a week ago, it's now sold a million copies, which is... Yeah, um, so that's a, you know, dang. And, and, And it's interesting for a few reasons. So it is a survival game. Um, open world survival game in a procedurally generated landscape that's based on Norse mythology and its version of Norse mythology because it feels like Norse mythology is everywhere at the moment um, but its version of Norse mythology is this sort of very light touch lo-fi 
um, kind of Nordic wilderness, um, the the notion, the, the conceit is that you have died and you've been ferried away to Valheim, which is like the 10th realm um, below the roots of the world tree, which you can see if you look up into the sky during the day, um, to kind of um, undergo this sort of symbolic journey of ascension to Valhalla. And I actually really like that conceit. Just now, just for the start of this, just that narrative conceit for a survival game. That you're you're not kind of, it's not about sort of um like just surviving, quote unquote, in a kind of realistic world. It's about this sort of like, you know, um pilgrim's journey, but through a particular kind of very martial mythos, which is cool. It's it's nice. Like you're kind of dropped into the level at the start by one of Odin's ravens and they will show up from time to time and squawk at you and give you some information. But for the most part, the structure of the game is you're dropped into this landscape, um, you craft and build to survive. And the goal is to locate and slay uh, a, a series of, of legendary beasts, basically. Um, and there's a whole bunch of things I want to say about it because it's quite special. Like it's it's definitely um, it's definitely going to be like it's one of the early games of this year. I think next to Hitman Three, which is like I would say feels increasingly likely to end up on my game of the year list at the end of the year when I look back on the start of 2021 and go, "What was that about?" And it's probably going to be this, and I think it's probably going to be this for a lot of people. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why it succeeds. I think where other survival games don't necessarily always do it for me. And um, one of them is that it has really interesting look and feel. It, um, it has a, a conscious aesthetic, which I would describe as either like PS2 era or dawn of 3D, accelerate, 3D accelerated PC RPGs. What it really feels like, even though it's a role, even though it's a survival game, and if the survival has become so much its own genre with so many associations hanging off it, and so much close association with very modern trends like early access, um, particularly post Minecraft, you know, with, with with PC gaming post Minecraft, basically, um, what I think people forget is that that there's a lineage there that, like most things, goes back to Ultima in a really important way. And back to that generation of, of early RPGs that stood at the crossroads between sandbox simulation yeah. and CRPG type, you know, rules based um, kind of uh, like D and D brought to life digitally experience, um, and uh, it exists on that crossroads. And and specifically, it feels like those early attempts to make MMOs out of three uh, D MMOs out of Ultima Online. Um, the, the, the nostalgia that it sets off for me is for games like Asheron's Call and like early EverQuest yeah. um, in, in its look and feel. It feels really great. Like it, it has, you know, it's very smooth to control, you know, good frame rate and it kind of feels nice and interactions feel nice. Um, but it looks deliberately um, lo-fi in a way that's really, really charming. And I really, and specifically kind of calls back to that era of, of games in a way that I find compelling, partly because it's tied to enough modern technology to elevate it quite substantially. So there's really lovely wind through the trees. It's a very windy place you're in and the direction of the wind matters um, and beautiful forests kind of wafting um, in the breeze. Similarly, the lighting's really lovely um, and the weather effects are really good. So even though you are in a kind of lo-fi environment, you'll occasionally will get genuinely kind of breathtaking moments of natural beauty, like the sun on the sea or like a storm whipping up the ocean and kind of battering the coastline. Um, 
all like those older RPGs, it has a skill system which is based on what you do. So running, jumping, using spears, using a bow, making things all kind of advances your bars and different things, kind of um, Elder Scrolls style. And um, and then on top of that, it has this sort of um, well, yeah. So you have that kind of skill system, and then on top of that. Uh, quite a deep crafting system but i think also part of its genius is it's also quite a forgiving system and and forgiving forgiving is maybe one way of putting it i think it's intelligently designed to make sure that the conflicts you're experiencing are the most interesting conflicts you could be experiencing in a moment in time which i think is probably the trick for survival games at least for me um so to give you an example it has a hunger and thirst system um no, no sorry hunger system but what this doesn't do is kill you um or not directly so your um max your all the actions you perform are based on your stamina which is a recharging bar and all of in your health bar is rather than your health bar being a fixed quantity your health bar is entirely based on the size and variety of the meal you've had recently so um, if you, uh, there's a little bit of a gamey conceit where you can't eat the same amount of food twice. You can't eat the same food twice until you've digested the first one. So your body will <laughs> reject, a, your, your body will reject a strawberry. Um, but you'll never starve to death. So if all you've got is a strawberry, you can only give yourself a strawberry's worth of extra health. You can't just eat three strawberries. Um, but you can stack different kinds of food. So at the moment I'll get up in the morning and I'll eat a roast leg of meat of some kind a strawberry and a mushroom and i'm set for the day i've got a nice big health bar a nice big stamina bar and that will last until i kind of finish kind of digesting that stuff and then maybe snack on something else on the way um and that feels really it feels like it rewards you for preparing and it punishes you for running you know for getting hungry at a bad time because other factors like getting cold or wet affect your stamina so you if you're going to go somewhere cold or wet you kind of want to do so on a full stomach or else you might get caught out but it's not like a kind of ticking clock that's going to affect your ability to play if you don't um, top off the various meters. The other thing that I really like is crafting is a case of like, you learn recipes as soon as you find the ingredients to assemble something. And then there's a really um, sort of like sort of smart kind of, I don't want to go into all the details, but like zone based way of like establishing an area where you want to build something. And then um you know you by building things in proximity to one another that levels up your ability to craft in a given area and then on top of that it has this really slick um basically like 3d but snap to you know snap to kind of key point based woodworking and lodge creation system they've obviously put a ton of time into not only like an architecture system that isn't block based it's kind of piece based um but crucially is like designed with building long houses and mead halls in mind so all of their kind of like angled roofs and, and various bits of thatching and stuff like that can be done um and there's some really cool little sort of systems to consider like how you're going to get fire in there in a safe way and how you're going to vent the smoke it's cold and wet outside so you can't just have an open chimney that will put out the fire so you know all of these little architectural challenges are really really fun and i found that like that combined with just the beautiful landscapes and the nice music made it just playing by myself like a really nice way to spend an evening just building sheds in the wilderness like and building myself, I've got a little um, seat. I've got a, I, I've 
builds a tiny a little footbridge out to an island just in an inlet and a kind of windswept coastline. And I've built a kind of um, like, you know, kind of raised cabin there. It's raised so that the sea can get under it if the water really gets very high. But I've also built like a tide wall with these kind of stakes in the ground. And one of the tide walls protects a little area where I set up some beehives where I get honey for my mead. And it's genuinely like lovely. I've got a little raft that I use to paddle off. It's got quite good sailing as well um, to paddle off and, you know, catch the wind and off down the coast. Um, and then on top of this, you've got like combat against, you know, various kind of gribbly little creatures from Nordic folklore that are quite kind of nicely designed. And today I had my, and then I had my first like encounter with a troll in the forest, which is exactly as scary as I remember hitting something that you shouldn't want to, you don't want to fight in EverQuest is it, it is not the world's most gruesome monster, but there's something about being chased by this too big, gawky, long limbed kind of beast. I wasn't expecting to kind of encounter in the depths of the woods that was genuinely like effective and, and really, really kind of, um, kind of pulled me in. Similarly, you can find little randomly generated dungeons like lost barrows full of skeletons where you can kind of delve deep to find these kind of like still glowing embers of like Nordic fire magic, basically, that you can kind of take home as a prize. And it, it's like, I'm really, really, really enjoying it. And it, and I've played it entirely by myself so far. Um, I've played entirely by myself so far, but like so many people I know are setting up servers, Minecraft style, that they basically just live on with their friends and yeah it's it's lovely i can see why it's done so well and i can just i suppose the sort of it is giving me both the kind of appeal of those sort of survival building crafting games and also i think for the first time in a while the first time i felt properly kind of gripped by an rpg honestly even though there's you know barely any writing in it and it's not about it's not story led exactly but it's been a long time since i've gone off into the woods not knowing what I would find and had an adventure. Like, you know, I played for an hour before we started recording tonight and that little adventure ended with night falling and me still being in the woods and sprinting through the forest, being chased by these little creatures called gray dwarves that were that then chased me all the way to my raft and then like pushing my raft out to sea and them swimming after me and like firing the bow from the back of my raft to try and like kept, you know, hold them at bay. Um, as a sort of storm kicked off was like a proper little proper little video game experience and so yeah i appreciate i've just talked for like 15 unbroken minutes but valheim is really good basically oh it sounds Are you good excited yeah yeah it sounds, it's, it sounds jank free yeah that's the other thing i would say is i um i imagine it can grow and evolve with with things there's there's some fiddliness with its building like it's very reliant on what order you kind of get your timbers down in in order to kind of have its snap to building behave itself um but really like it's such a it feels very complete and like it knows what it is and i imagine it'll get bigger and they'll add things i haven't i haven't wanted for anything yet i certainly haven't run out of content and and also i think it's such a relief i think i maybe unfairly associate the genre so much with like a heavy focus on like core kind of survival mechanics at the expense of like kind of shooting for any kind of bigger feelings other than panic other than fear of falling short of of some you know threshold or another and so to have a game like that that has a very distinct art style that feels like it's kind of 
able to capture a bit of the wonder of its environments as well and gives you the space to just sort of take it in at your own pace is, is really nice. It's a really good game for right now, I think. Um, uh, you know, I, there's 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 something to be said for, you know, fleeing through the woods, being chased by little men going, blah, at a time where we just can't do that like we used to, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. I want everyone to to come and play it with me, basically, and we could just all become. I'm highly gruff, tempted. Gruff Vikings right. together. Let's let's do it. Let's make right. a pact. A mm. pact is made this night. A Although, how many how many punches does it take to to uh, knock a tree down? Oh, I forgot. Oh, I did. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to ask about. Yeah, what are you what are you building your made holes out of? Your made Wood. Holes. So here's 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 the good thing. Um, so you can, um, when you start, you do, you're going to have to punch a tree. Um, but well, you can find logs on the ground and branches and things that you can, you can use to, you can pick up just off the bat, um, to make your first kind of hatchet or whatever. Um, but, and you can also, you're punching a tree, punching a tree doesn't do anything because you can't hurt it. You know, you'll get like a zero damage done indication, but you can find saplings and basically punch them to to death the i think the 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 intent there is uprooting them manually rather than you know actually punching a sapling down but after that you can get yourself an axe and go fell bigger trees and the um the best interaction and i think it takes a lot for a survival game to make cutting trees down interesting again but what they've done is um trees are physics objects when they fall that do shit loads of damage yes so, this is this is good this is good. so basically and it, it, it's the game it's very gamey like this is what i like about it is it's not going too deep down the sandbox or the 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 simulation angle which leads to kind of too much jank so when you knock down a troll tree it becomes one big log that will fall based on gravity in the approximate direction that you chopped it in and so you've got to be very mindful to be out of the way and it can knock down other trees as it goes like it, it could take down several trees and then it forms like a really big log. And then you chop that log into two logs by doing further damage. And then you chop those individual logs into piles of wood that you then hoover up video game style. Like creatures, like animals or enemies when they die, collapse and then like poof into like a pluff of smoke that um, that just then then contains the kind of sparkling floating pickups that they have dropped, right? This, it doesn't Sounds have quite that kind of... a Breath of the Wildy, like sort of- That's you know... true actually, yeah. Very different aesthetic, but like it has some of that like video game ishness that sort of almost I find it almost reassuring. It's like you know this is a game. Like similarly, when you summon one of the bosses, the first boss that you fight, it's like this monstrous like deer elk whose like um, horn whose antlers are wreathed in lightning, and it's a full on Zelda boss battle. Like it has an AOE lightning attack and a lightning dash, and the only thing that makes it not Zelda is the fact that like some like in a soundtrack that's otherwise very folksy suddenly like the heavy metal guitars have kicked in and the sky has turned red and like <laughs> and it's like you've got to wrestle this deer for odin's approval now um but and then also killing those bosses when you hang their trophies up in a stone circle in the center of the map you get like once a day type superpowers you can use it's, there's some really cool stuff in there um yeah um i'm i'm really really enjoying it and i think it, i 
if you told me this was just been released, I would have believed you. Like it doesn't have any of the problems that I associate with these kinds of early access releases. I would happily recommend people to play it now. Super. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's real nice. Real nice. I've noticed it's obviously doing well because every game site I've looked at recently has is covered in guides for it. I would also recommend just kind of going in without that. There's a few things that I have looked up because I wasn't sure, but it explains itself pretty well. Like I didn't have to be told don't stand under a tree when you knock it down. Um, I right. discovered this because the first tree I did like did uh, in this way completely fucking annihilated a seagull on its way down. And I also learned <laughs> what to do with feathers. <laughs> so the recipes aren't just uh, completely obscure and uh, arbitrary you so i think in almost all cases when you find a new item or build the next like extension for your crafting setup in your home um you automatically get told what those recipes are so like i've when i killed my first skeleton that gave me my first bone pieces and that taught me to make a cloak by combining deer deer skins with like bones to make a cloak for some reason but like i knew i could i was nice told like bony cloak yeah other really nice thing from coming from and uh, you know coming from this for this genre is there's a weird thing where you need a crafting bench you need to create a crafting bench which you can place anywhere in order to be able to do crafting things like dismantle stuff in a radius around the bench which is quite generous and then if the bench is fully enclosed in a building which it knows how to figure out then the bench gains the ability to make items as well, which is a, and repair them, which is a bit of a weird interaction, but it kind of makes sense when you figure it out. But the cool thing is you don't have to replace your stuff. You can upgrade your stuff by you know, upgrade your axe and, and your gathering materials and your weapons and things. Um, you And all you need to do to repair them, because they take wear and tear like they do in Minecraft, um, but all you need to do to remember them is return back to your crafting bench and then repair them. And it doesn't even cost any resources. The only cost is the time it took you to go back and do it. So the reason you would take an extra spear with you on an adventure is just in case your first one, you know, runs it down. You don't need to do that thing of constantly replacing your gear, um, which I am really glad to see gone because I think that is often feels like a bit of a time sink. Hmm. And and it naturally fits this rhythm of like, oh, it's getting dark, time to go back to my hut and sleep anyway. So that's when you would naturally kind of top up your stuff. Real nice, real nice video game. Like it. Hmm. Hmm. What you've been playing, Marsh? I've been playing Journey to the Savage Planet. Oh. Uh, which has been out for a whole year on Epic. So, you know, might as well have never been released. Um. Actually, as an aside, just to immediately derail uh, my own game discussion, but it's really interesting to me which which games seem to break out through that Epic Game Store Omerta. Like, obviously, Hitman did uh, recently in a big way. And obviously, Outer Wilds before that, there was already a buzz around that. But I mean, I, I don't don't know that if the silence particularly corresponds to low player purchase numbers from the epic store i don't have any insights into that but it does seem to be there is a big still a big issue with media visibility of games that have been launched on the epic game store but i mean what do you what do you two think helps sort of what is the magic source that makes a game break through i i I, I, this is a bit of a cop-out i don't think there's a single answer to that i think because i've been i've talked to various people over the years in the industry about this phenomena 
and like whether it's the right thing or not to take that epic deal given the the, the sums involved and given what that can mean for a developer like it's nothing to sniff at like i think there are plenty of circumstances where that availability of capital is like maybe the difference between a project happening or not or happening in the way that you want it to or not and that's you know that's almost then a kind of like just a case of subsequently marketing it i think the games that have done really well in that context tend to have tend to be able to well maybe it's the obvious answer they tend to be able to bring in an audience from somewhere else because um the there isn't and this is an interesting thing there isn't a standing audience on the epic store that can really be observed to be moving from game to game the, the fact that the Fortnite audience is there does not seem and this is anecdotal i would happily be proven wrong about this does not seem to be waiting to hop off into the latest game to be added to the store right yeah mm. um yeah and I would argue the same is arguably true for Steam as well. Like it's not like the Counter Strike Go or the Dota audience, which are the big standing audiences of that platform, or PUBG, are there waiting to hop off into a new game either. It's just far better established as a store, and it's it's people of a much bigger investment in it, and it's more, more widely distributed. So, like, you know, it feels like success on Epic means you've either got you've got to bring something from somewhere else. You've either got to bring a community that is coming for your games particularly. You've got to have mm -hmm. transferred to the Epic Store, which is probably the case for Hitman. You've got to be present on consoles as well, and this is just where you are on the PC, so you're kind of benefiting from all that cross-marketing. You've got to um, gain a bunch of buzz with the previous release or kind of ha have some ability to import your audience. Because I think, I think what's been proved is that people will move. People will go to Epic for a game they really want. But I don't think anyone is hanging around on Epic waiting for a game to appear. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky situation to be in, I think. Especially, I mean, this is this was the debut game from uh, Typhoon Studios. In fact, this is, I mean, this has uh, current relevance as well because uh, I think I, I'm not quite sure if this before or after the game's release on Epic, but around that time of their release of this game, they got absorbed into Stadia, um, and obviously oh the fate of the studio is. Mm. I mean, I assume they're all out of a job now rather than the studio has just been spat back out whole. Um, but uh, I think Alex Hutchinson still has his um, bio saying that he's still a Stadia bigwig. Alex Hutchinson was the studio head of Typhoon. And you may recall uh, said some flippant but not entirely inaccurate things about streamers last year and got in big trouble for it. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, it's not quite clear what the fate of the studio is, but it's sort of been double cursed by this, its Epic exclusivity because, you know, it sort of went on to Epic with not that much kind of history or fanfare behind it that would require it to, you know, which would be the thing that would get over the sort of Epic Omerta hurdle. And now it's been released on Steam, but there's no cheerleaders for it because that studio is defunct. Uh, and it seems a real shame because you know, on the basis of this game, it sort of deserved a better fate, really. Yeah. Uh, so what is it? How it do? Yeah. Oh, I suppose I should do that, shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, Prove uh, it. It's a it's a first person adventure game um, in which you are a pioneer for the Earth's fourth best space exploration company. And uh, you've been dispatched to this brightly coloured sort of cartoonish planet, previously thought uninhabited by intelligent life. But it is not so. 
um, and you sort of bounce and bound around it uh, in pursuit of its mysteries. And you do that by unlocking a sort of Metroidvania traversal toolkit through um, some survival light resource grinding, I would say. Um, and um, like, actually, if you sort of break it down, like the interactions that comprise the game, like if you break it down into those traversal mechanics or the combat, it's not really that inspiring. Like, I would say, actually, it has a shockingly bad control scheme for both keyboard and gamepad out of the box. Usually, a studio get one of them half right. <laughs> but but uh, it's it, like if you play on gamepads, uh, among its several crimes is that it binds dash and crouch to the same button. And you may you may be aware that those are not similar verbs. <laughs> at all and so dash is like context sensitive so that if you're moving at all when you hit the button you do a dash but if you're still you crouch uh, surely like, loads surely you've loads never of... seen a roadie then because those are the same <laughs> verb if you are trying to fix a microphone at a status quo gig yes but you're doing both of the things simultaneously whereas here you, you wouldn't you wouldn't want a roadie to try and dash crouch but only crouch that's that would true. be a mistake then you're just they would just yeah <laughs> yeah but the, the, I mean, <laughs> there's lots of movement challenges at you know at uh, status quo gigs as well as in this game, where um, you know like you're dodging rotating lasers. This is not a status quo gig. That's that's in the game, <laughs> um, uh, and you know the rotating lasers at different heights, and you know, or you're trying to hurriedly get out of the sight of this creature and into some long grass, and you're moving, and then you need to suddenly crouch, and like it's impossible not to fuck that up with this control scheme. Because you because you still dash even if you have momentum even if you your fingers off the off the stick, hmm. uh, it's just it's absolutely baffling that they would do it. And even beyond that, the platform was kind of shonky because it's reliant on the game uh, being able to differentiate between mantling onto something with the same button as you would otherwise jump. It it just can't detect the difference between um, mantling uh, when you wish to mantle. Uh, on anything that is anything other than horizontal. Uh, like if a platform's at an angle, I mean, it doesn't necessarily know that you want to mantle onto it and then you plummet to your death. Uh, it's just like, well, I knew I wanted to mantle onto that. I pressed the button to make it happen, but the game didn't listen. And worse, a lot of those platforms are made out of giant purple crystals. Um, and I fucking hate giant purple crystals. Oh, I was going to ask why that was worse, but... Okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad, glad you were going to ask. Is it the size or is it the material? It is related to the size. It's because they can be literally any fucking size at all. They can be big. They can be small. It's the same model scaled up and down. And if you don't know how big something is when you look at it, it's very hard to tell how far away it is, which is a problem if you want to jump on it. Fuck crystals. <laughs> <laughs> What's the issue with them being purple then? Let's yeah, just... what about purple? Oh, the, the the purple aspect of it is is fine, but it's a massive cliche, isn't it? Like every game has purple <laughs> crystals, it seems. Okay, they're trite. They're of indeterminate size. I'm Marsh Davies, and I hate trite things of indeterminate size. I do. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the the shooting is kind of blah as well. Um, so, so you, and the enemies you, you reset you it. Can I just surprises. remind you that we set into this with you trying to convince <laughs> us why this game was worth... Uh, it's sad that, that it's been overlooked. 
Well, it's because somehow altogether, these this are like it's a sort of splashy, almost frictionless, low brain activity pastime, and that's exactly what I'm after right now. As I've previously said on recent podcasts, and the and the world is just really nice and colourful and varied to look at, and you know, even though I don't particularly like the way the traversal affordances have been implemented, traversing that world is still. A satisfying accomplishment like there's just something really nice about looking up at a massive floating monolith and then an hour later looking down from it to where you were before and that, that just that's a really pleasing it actually reminds me of grow home and grow up in that in the in the mm. verticality of oh, the yeah, space yeah. and it's also very funny um it's got this sort of quippy day glow cheeriness to it undercut with a sort of puerile black humor um it's sort of, it's I mean, it's it's not um, it's not great satire or anything. Even though it, even though it sort of like has a couple of jabs at capitalism, it's never going to go any deeper than that, you know. In the way because it's uh, your the company you work for is this cash strapped and completely amoral uh, space exploration company, um, and there's kind of jokes about how you're actually being killed every time you use a teleporter and just reconstituted somewhere else, which would please Tom Francis probably since he did his dissertation on that. Um, so it's sort of like in the it's in the sort of like Powerpuff Girls uh, arena of comedy, I would say, which is not which is not a dig. Uh, I, I like Powerpuff Girls, and you're accompanied by this cheerfully psychopathic computer assistant at all times who does the narration, which is a cliche, I think now, but like it's well done. The actor uh, who is also uh, uh, named Savage, Kendall Savage, in fact, uh, does a really good job landing the lines. Um. Yeah, it's, I like it. But well, actually, there's some weird stuff with the humor where it sort of goes like it's generally you're generally in the cartoon network rather than adult swim territory. But then occasionally something will just strike you as crossing that line. Like you go back to the habitat and there are spoof commercials playing, which are for a, a, a sex line with a reconstituted meat creature. Um <laughs> Which were funny, Ooh. but they didn't just didn't they just didn't feel like they entirely belonged in the rest. The rest of the game just doesn't commit to that kind of humor. They got a I bit mean, of Rick and kill. Morty in it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like Rick and Morty, there you do slaughter a lot of uh, very cute creatures and save their juices. Uh, there's these sort of like giant bug-eyed flightless birds that are absolutely everywhere, and you can just punt them around like beach balls and. Uh, in fact, you need to. You need in some areas there's these sort of plant things, and you need to kick the birds uh, into their giant carnivorous rotating moors. Uh, and when you do that, there's just this horrendous sound of like a wood chipper grinding away at the poor little bird, uh, which made me laugh. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, there's there's a lot of good throwaway gags in this that are just just sounds and minor animations and i think that's a really undertapped source of comedy in games because i think i think physical comedy in games has been sort of derailed by all the the uh, the goat simulator and etc era of uh semi comic games whose comedy hinges in a physical way but on the game's uncanniness or glitchiness mm. um it's sort of like third wall break fourth wall breaking um uh physical comedy about being a game but i actually think there's a lot of more stuff that can be done and like like in this i like the fact that 
you occasionally kind of scoop up alien goop and stuff it into your face to get XP. And just after you do that, your your character audibly retches. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's funny. <laughs> or like you, or like the you have the melee, the basic melee attack that you have is this backhanded slap. And and when you charge it, your hand sort of quivers in front of your face, like you're barely containing your rage. And it's it's I don't know. It's just lots of nice little details like that. And it's even though I don't think it's uh, it's like uh, highly accomplished game in a lot of ways. Uh, it's really what I needed. It's just lightweight, low level, continue continually engaging, and uh, it's sort of peppy and funny and, and uh, actually quite delightful. I thought, yeah, nice. It is a shame then. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Good that it's a shame. (laughs) Confirmed. Shame. Well, maybe maybe it'll do all right now. Maybe it will find a home for itself because, you know, things can gain momentum. You know, they don't have to. Not every. But who's getting paid as a result? I don't know. That's a good point. That is a good point. Nobody. They're probably just burning all the money. Back. Okay, fine. Back to being a shame. You're right. You convinced me. I looked at. I was looking for silver lining, but all I found was a trite, shapeless opinion um, <laughs> of indeterminate size. <laughs> Shall we do some questions from questions? Well, well, Alex, I was wondering if you two would be interested in a little diversion. Oh Christ! Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. I thought I'd make a noise. I didn't realize I'd make a Scooby Doo noise. I think oh, I might. Oh, Reggie. Right. I think I might have just gotten a slight copyright strike on YouTube. <laughs> Sorry. So what you've done, Martin? I know. I know. What? It's not a quiz. It's not a quiz that massively outstays its welcome, like the preceding <laughs> diversions of this podcast. It's more akin to one of those sort of smug late night culture shows that the BBC used to do when it was still good, um, hosted by, I don't know, Alan Yentob or somebody and featuring the great luminaries of the day to discuss the topics of import. Except instead of any of that, it's me and you two. <laughs> <laughs> will you be, will you be Yentob? Uh, yes, I, I will be the Yentob of this uh, equation. Are you my Yentob? It's the most middle class question I've ever heard. Be my Yentob. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and on this Valentine's special, I'm simply asking the question, but, 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 but is it Nurgle? <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is I'm going to present you with a number of subjects. I just simply want you uh, to get a consensus, if consensus there be, on which Chaos God is most likely to be responsible. <laughs> so the okay. first topic is the 80s. Slanesh. Slanesh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brexit. Corn. Zinch. Ooh. <laughs> Both. I think this feels like one of those classic Warhammer situations where Corn is on like the leading edge, but something was whispered in his ear by yeah. like Corn doesn't realise that he's being played. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like Zinch is making out big on this. <laughs> hmm. Favoured birthday snack, Colin the Caterpillar. Oh. Well, that's got to be slanish. Is it, though? I mean, I felt really sick after having them a lot. I think, well, if you ate, if you ate an entire colon caterpillar by yourself, that could be the start of a path to damnation. Exactly. 
And it was caused by Slanish. Slanish. Mm, no. I think if, if, if there's like a little line of cocaine down Colin the Caterpillar's back, maybe. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like uh, like uh, any birthday party. I, I think I think that's, I, I would make a case for Nurgle. I'd make the case for Nurgle. <laughs> How could you say anything from Marks and Spencer's is the is the is the the power well, of the, the, the of grandfather Nurgle plagues. Yes. Uh, I would say, well, bear in mind Nurgle also represents entropy. And I think I think marking your aging with Ooh. Colin the Caterpillar, it's got an air of the gift your that shows up <laughs> on your desk when your office mates don't know what to get you. It has this <laughs> there is I, I know people love Colin the Caterpillar and I know that I have debased him twice over now, but um i do think there's a there's a drab inevitability um that makes you smile um mm. you grin you grin through the inevitability of it all and i think that is nurgle-esque only thing in the in the spirit of the original question it's nurgle <laughs> <laughs> see that's that's a very uh potent and convincing explanation but i think by virtue of its potency I think there's a little bit of Tsinchian deception going on there. Because they're not actually very nice. Mm, No, but that's the point, right? Like, it looks like a, it looks like a big turd. (laughs) And that's also got a Nurgle element to it. Um. (laughs) It's definitely visually the most Nurgly of of these topics, I would say. It looks like the contents of the great unclean one's mouth in the uh, Total War uh, Total War Hammer uh, trailer. Trailer, trailer, yeah, where he distends his your wide grinning maw to reveal just a selection of Marks and Spencer's <laughs> snacks and confectionery. Um, yeah, Crazy Assembly's artist did not go far from the office to get inspiration <laughs> for that. <laughs> How um, about Tesla? <laughs> Oh, wow. uh, I, mean, I think that's that's uh, that's singe. No, great horned rat. People forget there's a fifth. <laughs> People forget there's a fifth chaos god. I had, I had forgotten. That's, that's fair. That's good. Um, yeah. yeah, like well, actually, I'm actually nicking a joke from Minnie's Monthly here because we did actually put out an image that explained why Elon Musk is more like the arch warlock Thankwall, um, <laughs> arch inventor of the, the Undercity than uh thankwall is actually um the only thing he <laughs> the only thing he hasn't done that thankwall has done is blow up the moon and that's like it's just coming it's on his way question mark yeah yeah um digging tunnels giving people flamethrowers making electric cars that catch fire all of mm. it oh good yeah. lord he's already denied low orbit by putting so many satellites up there yeah, surely right. the next the next step <laughs> is the moon <laughs> finally the Antiques Roadshow, as hosted by Fiona Bruce. Oh, quiet, quiet beginnings of Slanesh. I'll come. That this is entropy. This is the very definition of entropy. Mm, but is it's it, the cycle. Mm. It's even the cycle of life. You know, things have to kind of die and go onto the Antiques Roadshow in order to. Find no, you are life. right. You are right. I think the other really key element here is the counting. Bear in mind that, like, the demons yeah. of Nurgle are constantly listing and counting and yeah. enumerating. Enumerating, yeah, yeah, putting and it so on scrolls, digging right, bells, yeah. finding how many things there are and what they're worth. Like, yeah, you're right. Mm. It's Nurgle. It's Nurgle. <laughs> <laughs>
There you go. I think we've got at least one and a half Nurgles out of that list, which is a good number of Nurgles to have. A round of applause. Yay! Was that section fun? Was it worth doing? Probably not. No, but we will strike this out of the recording, I think. (laughs) I had a nice time. I enjoyed myself. I miss... I miss I miss riffing on hot Warhammer lore. God knows I know what I am now. I denied it for a while. Uh, Shall we do some questions from questions? Yeah. All right, then. David writes, maybe we should assess each of these questions for Is It Nurgle as well? Which are these questions? Good. That's right. a good idea. David writes, hi all. After listening to Tom S's hatred of horseshoe maps in episode 355, I thought back to the dungeons of Unexplored and how great they are. The cyclic dungeon generation system it uses avoids dead ends and makes progression through the levels very smooth, like an egg, and satisfying, like an egg. Mm. The like an egg is an editorialization on my part. I would like to say that and apologize. (laughs) I've been on a roguelike kick for a while mostly playing Hades on my PC and the old Game Boy roguelike Cave Noir provides a URL on my phone. The level generation in Hades seems to be secondary to everything else that's going on. Fruity semicolon. It certainly provides a petty background to all the action that's going on, but I don't really notice the way each chamber is set up. Please excuse me while I have a small sip of water. Cave Noir, on the other hand, is pretty simplistic, being a Game Boy game, and just uses a set of prefabs for its rooms, but the deterministic and predictable movements of the monsters makes it more like a puzzle game, where the rooms are just another tool that you can use to navigate around monsters. What roguelikes have interesting and enjoyable levels, and what makes them work for you? Take care, David. Um, I was thinking about, um, I think that Unexplored was very highly, uh, very much inspired by... I mean, have you two played Unexplored? No. Nope. It's a really um, it's a really cool um, roguelike uh, made um, by an academic who was interested in, in sort of dungeon generation um, using principles where you can create these sort of cyclic, cyclic areas um, and also... Uh, you know, puzzles, uh, generate puzzles, basically. So you'd have the key and it would be behind the thing. And in order to get the thing, you'd have to do the other thing. And the the generation system has to be quite um, uh, sophisticated to, 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 to do something, you know, to, to set out that kind of design in a, in a kind of satisfying way. And it is good. It's a really nice one. It's like, it's very action-based. Um, uh, and it looks very, very simplistic, but um, it's it's really good to play. And the uh, sequel is coming soon, I believe. It looks rather beautiful. Anyway, the, but I think that a lot of its ideas are actually um, straight out of Brogue, which is a much more traditional uh, roguelike um, where you're playing uh, characters, you know, ASCII characters. Um, but actually, it's, I actually find it quite beautiful. It colours in the ASCII uh, according to whether there's fire there or, um, and you know, so you get these kind of nice gradations of colours in, in dark areas and in bright areas and where there's fire and, 
and sort of vegetation is green and so on. So actually, it's very readable for all its ASCII-ness. So it doesn't have that dwarf fortress impenetrable tool, but the experts thing. And in that, mm. you have these um, situations where there's a locked door, but you know that there will be a key somewhere. Or sometimes there's a, a, a room that you know it's there and you just can't figure out how to get to it because it's over a chasm, uh, for instance, and there's no other way in around it. So, but then you realize that there's a, a, a potion of levitation somewhere or that, that might be the solution. But the the cool thing about it is that that might not be the only solution. It might be something else as well. Instead, it might be a secret passage or something like that. And that makes entirely, you know, these are entirely generated levels. Um, it introduces much more engagement to what would otherwise be a very, very, um, uh, you know, traditional uh, roguelike. Um, and adds loads and loads of depth. And um, you know, it's got, I follow the um, Brogue uh, uh, subreddit and people are continually posting new things that they've found in a game that they've been playing day in, day out for years and years and years. Like, you know, they haven't seen a, a, it ever generate a, a chasm or a room this large before and and so on. And I think it's really, yeah, it, it's, it, it really speaks to its creators. And I can't remember his name now. Um, it's a nice guy, but um, uh, it speaks to the work that is, its creator went into, put into it all that time ago. You know, it must be, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. I don't even know when he made it. But yeah, Brogue does that and it is cool. And it's free if you want to play it. Cool story, Brogue. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Oh, that I question was, because it's generative, I would say that would be Sinch, I suppose. Don't not mm. feelings. Sinch yeah, is the most sort is, of I mean, fractal. Yeah, this is a, this is a question to do with the construction of twisting in kind of infinitely changeable mazes. Yeah, so, it's, yeah very, it's, it's, it's very it's very yeah. very crystal labyrinth. Um, I wish I had a better answer, but I I, I don't. <laughs> um, uh, Fernando writes, "Hello, hello," uh, and I also would love us to enjoy the the ride that we're about to go on. Um, Tonally. Hello, hello. Just recently found your podcast. Really enjoying it. Every time Tom Senior is introducing himself, my mind thinks he's going to say Tom Selleck, which is nice and confusing. Anyway, I tested positive for COVID over a month ago. Oh, my God. God. (laughs) And went on paid leave for two weeks and had a great time catching up. (laughs) What? (laughs) Catching up on some games and finishing Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which is now one of my favorite Assassin's Creed games. But I'm really tired when I get home now that I'm back to working. And so I can't get myself to sit at a desk and I just want to lay down lazily on my bed. So what games would you say are great for lazy or tired moods or couch gaming? That's from Fernando. And obviously, I hope, you know, wishing a very um, speedy and full recovery for Fernando. And thank you for that tonal sine wave that we got to bounce (laughs) up and down on. Um, We left on an up, right? We're on left on an up. We, yeah. No, we we ended no. in bed. We ended in bed, which is how, um, you know, it, it's just how it is. Um, <laughs> uh, so, well, this is the question of the. I mean, obviously, Fernando's had a very visceral first-hand experience of this, but this is the um, question of the era, right? Like, pick your fugue state. What what is it that you're going to do in order to simply make time be gone? Um, my answer to this is very much rooted in uh, it's not really couch gaming but 
I mean, Valheim's been nice recently because it has pulled me out of the miasma of MMOs that I would otherwise be playing. I basically alternate between World of Warcraft and Destiny 2 because both of them have a sense of permanence that I find comforting, whereas other games are waiting for me to return to them in order to advance the state of the universe, whereas WoW is just kind of there. And if I don't kill the big bat today, someone else will, you know? But if I can, maybe I'll get to ride the bat. But I haven't yet. <laughs> Alex? <laughs> Just three I, men I, there I... stood in a circle looking at the buck left on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I just didn't want to talk about my bloody mister again because I don't know. That's what I've been doing because it's sort of got lots of different games on it, and I just sort of do a little dibble dabble, play a little ghouls and ghosts, and get pummeled by yes. it, and then do something else and do. Something I mean, else sort of. And... Unbeknownst got... to Fernando, this question has basically been: What have you been playing? Oh, there's a game uh, I haven't got very far into called Quomp, uh, which has just been released on Steam. Uh, which maybe I mean it's quite challenging. I think it's in that it's a sort of v v v v v v v v v v style um, uh, game, <laughs> but you are the the ball from Pong, um, and you only press one button, and that basically changes the uh, diagonal trajectory from bottom left to top right to you know the other one. Right. To, yeah, the other way. Um, <laughs> so it changes the, the the vertical direction of your movement, but your lateral direction is not affected. Um, and there are mazes for you to navigate. But maybe that would be a good... I found it too taxing, which is why I've gone back to Journey to the Savage Planet. But maybe if you're a fan of one-button games, that would be a, that would be good. Like we'll say, womp. That's fun. It's a good word, isn't it? Why has no one identified that previously? Seems like... Hmm. Just a good sound. Yeah, I'm trying to think of... <clears throat> I got um, ill last year. I had some some uh, teeth agonies. And the solution to my teeth agonies at the time was the Marvel Avengers game. So I, I will. Uh, there's always going to be a place in my heart for Deeply 7 out of 10 console action games, I think, when, when I need to be sideways for a time. Um, but, yeah, there hasn't really been a game like that in my life lately that I... I I would happily kind of bounce back into. Well, there had, there, I mean, there has been Destiny, uh, as I've banged on about before, and we've all banged on about before. But um, I actually went back to play the new um, start the new season last night, and mm. I was in that kind of oh, everything's new, and I feel really exhausted. <laughs> oh. So I didn't want to talk about because I think for once it's like starting new Destiny season, and I've played a bunch of other things that I think are probably a broader interest. Yes, I think I, I would like to note that I think the if you heard someone just explain what the central kind of progression mechanic is for the new season, it sounds like it sounds like devil nonsense. It's just pure fucking bad cyberpunk machine speak. Not because of the writing of the game, just because of the level of abstraction and nonsense i think we've collectively arrived at with how we think about progressing um in video games now because basically if you want to 
properly decrypt an umbral engram, you've got to charge your hammer by collecting gold, which you do by completing playlist activities throughout the week. And then when you've charged yeah. the when you've charged the hammer, you can queue for a battleground, which will unlock a lens that allows you to decrypt um, the engram into a particular legendary. I've been Chris Thurston, and this has been my fugue state that I've just welcomed so you. So that's into. why I felt so tired. It I, is. Um, I wasn't. Mm. Really, I was so tired. I wasn't really listening to what I was being told. Right. Um, um, and and the, I think by the blue man, it's it's hypnotic, isn't it? And as I've stated, that's illegal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, but I think, like, I I hit the same thing. I started playing, and I was like, "Oh, this is nice. It's new, and there's a there's a big there's a new." social area you can go to and they've obviously tidied some up from some stuff up from a storytelling point of view and yeah. the character's wearing a very silly outfit now and that's fun um but then i was like oh something to learn time for sleep and um <laughs> and haven't haven't uh and then it's like back to world of warcraft gotta kill that bat again yeah um, back to the bat yeah exactly um but yeah. it does seem quite good yeah but but but, but is it nurgle Oh yeah, the mm. question is it uh boys yeah is very nurgle. This question, well, yeah, it prominently features someone getting ill. That's a tick in the nurgle box. And it has a cyclical nature between mm. the bad and the good. That mm -hmm. I think, yeah, this this one's um this one's Nurgle all the way down. Nurgle confirmed. Mm-hmm. Uh our final question for this episode comes from a listener who writes, Hello, Charles and Camilla. A question of language here. In the previous episode, Alex was discussing Olija and described the game's harpoon gun as its central, in quotes, gimmick. When talking about games, do you perceive that the application of the word gimmick has a negative connotation? In my mind, the distinction between gimmick and game mechanic is the difference between something feeling natural to use, such as riding a horse in Red Dead Redemption, compared to something that feels overcalculated to create gameplay or a hook whereby the player it brings where whereby it brings the player out of the immersive world of the game and back to seeing that they are play what they are playing as a game, the horrible level up perk system in Horizon Zero Dawn. Simply put, to me, if the intentionality of a mechanic is too obvious and screams this this is game design to a player, it is a gimmick. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for the pods. Ah listener. Ah listener. Uh yeah, I remember actually saying gimmick and regretting it at the moment. Like it was a sort of a stupid word stumble because I didn't really mean gimmick because it is, yeah, it's a mechanic. Like it feels totally natural in the game. Not like I, I broadly agree with with different, you know, obviously gimmick is a differentiation from, from that. It's definitely a negative term. What do you think about that definition, Chris? I'm not sure I... I'm totally with it. I'm, I'm not totally with it either. I don't think I perceive the pejorative in gimmick because I think, um, I think it can be used as pejorative and that, you know, like one of those interesting words that kind of depends on usage. I also think that like, I don't think that it is a failing of game design for something to signal or signpost, Hey, this is the, the mechanic or the abstraction that this yes. entire experience is built around. That's, that's not like it, it is, it is not a, de facto failing of a game to express its mechanicalness um, yeah. as opposed to its kind of broader, you know, because they simply put the immersion is not the desired end state of all games. Um, you know, um, Quomp, for example, a game I didn't, had, didn't know nothing about 22 minutes ago, 
now springs fully formed in my mind as an example of like, well, Quomp is a one button game. Is being one button a gimmick or is it the game? Right? Like, you know, that's, I would say, even the heart of Quomp. I just wanted, I wanted to bring this up so I could just say Quomp. It is Quomp, Quomp. right? Q O M P. Quomp. Um, <laughs> um, say it again. Quomp. One more time. Quomp. That was a gimmick. Uh, the heart of Quomp. <laughs> to prolong this bit. Um, the, but, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a gimmick just to kind of, you know, to build a game around a particular conceit because it's just designing the game, isn't it? That's my opinion. Um, I think, but, you know, I think the, 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 but you can have, I think you can have something in a game which actually leads nowhere and that being a gimmick, you know, that's sort of. Yeah. Something kind of maybe think, a little bit noisy mm, in a game, but actually it's pointless. That would be a gimmick. Mm. Yeah, I, I think can I, agree I, with that. I, yeah, I, I do agree with that, but I do think it's quite common, and I do this, to use the word gimmick simply to imply like an overt mechanic. A thing. Um, and a, without a any kind point. of. Yes, I mean, it's better to call it a gimmick, I think, than uh, something like, you know, Cinchian double speech, like, it's a tentpole feature. Tentpole feature. <laughs> Said the Lord of Deceit. <laughs> bird beaked <laughs> playing on his mister <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah i think i think it's it's telling that both of the examples given in this question are triple a open world third person adventure games and i think in that con in, if you limit your context in that way you can probably identify where something has been implemented in a gimmicky way versus where it has been implemented well but in another context, yeah, I would happily accept a gimmick as a way of saying, like, this is what makes this different to every other 2D indie platformer, for example, in the case mm. of um, Allegia or, or or indeed, you know, any other kind of game. Turns out, it turns out language is about context. Mm. Um, but it's an interesting point because I think, you know, I think maybe there's a broader thing here about, like, given the inevitable gaminess of games like what is you know what are the effective what, what is it what is the quality that makes a mechanic when it is introduced feel like a natural and kind of fully featured part of the game and what is it that would make someone reach for the 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 gimmick word in this case that was a question if it, it wasn't clear oh was a, it a, oh. Prompt, a, <laughs> a prompt if you will um well maybe not maybe it's bedtime <laughs> i think i think you know like like you were saying the sort of the, the with the examples being those big open world immersive games um you know they are an environment where design when mechanics tend to stand out you know because they're not naturalistic in the way that the game is kind of meant to be mm. which is why i really admire breath of the wild where it's filled with gimmicks you know but they all knit together really nicely and they're also well realized that that you don't mind the kind of the artifice of them i suppose the kind of the sort of the non naturalistic way of that they are mm. And this question, if we were to assess it as we have been, is it Nurgle? It's corn. No. Interesting. Interesting, Alex. I don't have an argument for that, though. <laughs> okay. And that is why it's corn. 
I think I could make the case for this, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think um here's 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 the idea, right? Corn is all about straightforward, no bullshit interactions, simple valor, easily expressed singular mindset, right? Corn doesn't embrace a diversity of viewpoints on where skulls should go. Or how or where a skull should be. There is one place a skull should be, and that's in a skull throne. And there's one place where blood should be, and that's for the blood god. So, in some ways, it's a little bit like this questioner, who who posits a situation where uh, a mechanic should be seamlessly integrated. Uh, yeah. Immersion. No gimmicks. No gimmicks. You know, no gimmicks. No fluff. Corn don't like gimmicks. Exactly. Immersion for the immersion god. <laughs> um, you know f- f- fucking that's it I think alternatively it's not mm. yeah that's legitimate as well <laughs> hang on I just got to shovel more coal back in this uh, steam train I am Thelma <laughs> uh, hold my hand um <laughs> Let's just say it's corn, unless someone has something funny to say about one of the others. Those are all the questions we have time for. <laughs> hey! Not <laughs> what that noise uh, was either, to be honest. That was like, God knows where that came from. Were, were those all the questions that we had time for, Chris? Yes. Those were all the questions we have time for. If you'd like to send us a question, you can do so at questions at cranecrowbar.com or you can tweet us at cranecrowbar and fire your tweets into a void where it will be neither seen nor heard. All these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube where you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash creationcrowbar. Thanks as always to our backers on Patreon. You can back us too at patreon.com slash creationcrowbar or you can simply join our lovely Discord community who are very wonderful, the link for which is on our website, creatingcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Alex Wiltshire. I've been purple and of indeterminate size. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm not, I'm not your dancing monkey. <laughs> I'm not your I'm not your bono for hire. <laughs>